0: All right, if you want to make your way back in or back to your seat, and if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 7. We are we are jumping back into uh, right where we left off in the book of Romans, which we finished chapter 6. We spent four weeks talking about pursuing holiness, and now we're going to just launch right back into Romans chapter 7, the first six verses. And as you get yourself uh, situated and... Back into your seats uh, this morning, as I was coming in and just getting ready for uh, our time together, I thought a lot about how it's how kind of cool it is that our church right now we're meeting here, but we also have students in Japan and we've got uh, fifth graders in Kentucky and just in three different places kind of scattered not just here in the states but around the world our our team in Western Asia and missionaries in various places. Uh, And yet we all gather together um, during this time and we stop and we focus our attention on the gospel and we proclaim the truth of scripture. And the chance for us to do that as a congregation, not just here, but globally is pretty awesome. And so uh, I thought it would be good if we started our services by just praying for those, our students in Fukushima and our True seekers who are in Kentucky, and so if we could just join together for a couple minutes here and uh, pray for those groups. God, thanks for the opportunity to gather and to worship. Like Joe mentioned, uh, he spent some time in a couple of countries where believers can't do this freely, and so they have to gather in secret, in secret or in hiding. Uh, but they do so passionately and with a love that just burns for you for your son, God, for the truth of the gospel. And uh, Lord, I thank you that we have the chance to join them from here in a place where we can do so freely and openly, God, but we gather with the same sort of passion, the same sort of love. Uh, God, I pray for our students in Japan, a country full of people who likely haven't even ever heard uh, the truth of the gospel maybe are unfamiliar entirely with the name of Jesus. God, I pray that our our student ministry team there, God, as they serve and further our uh, LCF missionaries work there by building relationships and engaging in evangelism and having opportunities to interact and to share truth, Lord. God, I pray that the seeds that they plant there, God, you would bring a harvest to Lord, that you would change eternal realities for people as a result of uh, our team's service there. God, that as they gathered together earlier today to worship with a group of Japanese believers, Lord, I pray that it was encouraging and that it was an opportunity for uh, two separate cultures to come together under the banner of the gospel and just to worship and glorify you. God, I pray for our children, our true seekers in, in Kentucky God, they are serving in a place that has just wildly different circumstances um, demographically and economically and uh, culturally than what we have here. And in that area, Lord, there are people who, living life without hope, who feel destitute at times. God, I pray that as our true seekers are there and ministering to them, God, they have the opportunity to bring hope and encouragement the truth of the gospel into people's lives, Lord. And as they give their testimonies and share about what the Lord has done in their lives, God, would you plant seeds for the gospel in that place? And would you change eternal realities in that place, God? And we pray that you would do so here for us as well. God, as we open your word, as we sing to you, as we fellowship with one another, uh, God, would your spirit be in this place? God, would you move in our hearts, Lord? God, is the Church gathers globally I pray that you are lifted up and glorified and worshiped and praised, God, and that you get all the glory and honor that you deserve. God, And we want to be a part of that here uh, this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you uh, were here at any portion of the last four weeks as we have... Talked about what pursuing holiness is and why we would do that, and spent a couple weeks talking about how it is practically that we can engage in that. I hope a couple of thoughts have stirred kind of in your heart and in your mind. One of them being that as a believer, as a brother and sister in Christ, you think to yourself, you know what, I can do this. I can pursue holiness, and I want to be able to do that. I want to be molded into the image of Christ in the world. I also hope there's been a little bit of in, of intentionality here that there's a tension that has grown inside of you, which is a question almost, kind of stirring inside your own heart of, so I guess all I do is work a little bit harder at following the rules. Like I, I open up scripture, I see the commands in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and all the rest of them, there are hundreds, and then I, I open up the New Testament and there are Jesus' words and the words of the epistles and... I guess I just need to try a little bit harder. And so peeling back the curtain a little bit on the planning of our series, we positioned that Pursuing Holiness mini-series, if you will, where we did, because chapter 6, Paul introduces a conversation about sanctification. Chapter 7 and 8, he continues it. And so we paused after 6 in order to talk about that topic of Pursuing Holiness along with Paul Because now he's going to answer some logical questions that flow out of that conversation. And that's exactly where we're going to pick up this morning in Romans 7, 1 to 6. Romans 6, 7, and 8 all have, we've grouped under one sort of umbrella, if you will, that all who are justified by Christ have new life in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what God is illustrating for us in Romans 6, 7, and 8. We have this new life. We were justified by Christ, and now we have new life in Christ. Paul twice in Romans chapter 6 asks the same question. He states it two different ways. It's stated the first time in Romans 6 verse 1. So if you're in Romans 7 and you need to flip back a page or you need to look over to the other side of, of your text or you need to scroll up or whatever you need to do, this is what Paul asks in Romans 6 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so the grace may multiply? And then at the beginning of verse 2 he answers his own question. Absolutely not. Yours might say, by no means. Paul says it's completely impossible that you would do that, that we would continue in sin, having been saved by grace. There's there's no way we would. It's totally impossible. Why is it impossible? Because you have union with Christ now. You've been given this new life. You're no longer uh, living in death. You're living in life. And he gives the illustration of baptism that displays that union. And then he moves on in... Verses like 8, 9, 10, leading up to this first command or imperative that he gives in in the book of Romans in verse 11. He says, you need to consider yourself that way. You need to reckon to yourself or to apply to your account the same thing that God has applied to your account. That you're in Christ now with him, joined to him by grace through faith in his life, death and resurrection. And then in verse 15, Paul asks the question again, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he answers it the same way. He says, absolutely not or by no means. It is completely illogical for us to continue on in sin because we have a new master. You've been moved from a master of your flesh and of sin by faith and grace into a new master of Christ and grace. You've got a new nature, life rather than death. You've got that by grace. You've got a new master Christ rather than sin, you have that by grace. And now Paul's going to go on and he's going to give no new commands in the first six verses of chapter seven. In fact, the early part of Romans, Paul is just stating truth after truth after truth. And that's what he's going to do here. And he's going to pick up another illustration. We've had baptism, we've had slavery, and now Paul's going to use marriage. And the point of that is to make the statement that just as we are saved by grace, so too will we be sanctified by grace. Let's take a look at it. I'm going to start just by reading verse 1 of chapter 7. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? That's where Paul picks this conversation up. If you're still there in your Bible and you can look back to Romans 6, look at verse 14. Paul made a statement in Romans six fourteen that would have been controversial and, and inflammatory Almost confusing, but angering to a Jewish individual. He said, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. That phrase, you are not under the law, would have been controversial to a Jewish Christian. And so what Paul's going to address is a uniquely Jewish problem, which is having been saved. I understand, Paul, that I was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what do we do with the law? Does it just not apply to us? Do we just toss out everything in the Old Testament? What am I supposed to do, Paul? And that's exactly where he's going to pick things up. And that conversation is still very important and powerful for us today. And the way that Paul works his way through this is incredibly powerful for us today. There are two statements, uh, two truths that Paul is laying out here in the early part of Romans. The first is one that we know as believers and it's one that we cling to. And that's that we're not under a system of rules in order to be saved. We don't have to obey the law in order to be saved. Instead, the grace of God, accepted through faith in Jesus Christ, is what saves us. The second statement, the second truth, is equally as important, but it's one we don't think about nearly as much. And it's that in the same way that we're not under a system of rules in order to be saved, we're not under a system of rules in order to be sanctified either. The same grace that saved us is the grace that sanctifies us. And so his beginning point is to illustrate or just to make a statement, the law, whether that's in society or here in a scriptural sense, only applies to the living. You don't get a speeding ticket if you're not living, right? You can't. That's not how it works. And so just as in society this applies to us, Paul is going to apply it to us spiritually, and he's going to do so by using an illustration from marriage. And he picks that up in verses 2 and 3. This is what it says. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding her husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. I mean, just... Put, it into, put the illustration into you know, common language for us. There's a woman who's married. Her husband passes away. His death has freed her from the legal bond of that marriage. And now, because of that death and her subsequent freedom, she's free to remarry someone else without being considered adulterous. The bottom line, the gist of what Paul is saying in Romans 7, 2 and 3, is that her husband's death has released her from the demands of the law. That's what's important. Now he's going to imply that kind of marriage, death, freedom, or release framework to us spiritually. And so he does that in verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were also put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another. You belong to him who has raised you from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. Let's make sure we follow this one, and then we'll kind of fill it in and bring it into focus. You, before you were saved, whether... Reader of Paul's letter in Rome initially, or sitting in here today, before you were a believer, before you had received grace through faith, you were married to the law. And as a result, you were condemned by it. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. As a believer, you died, and now you're free from your legal obligation, and subsequently you're free from the condemnation that comes from it. Not only so, but you can, and you have remarried, and now you belong to Christ. The gist of verse 4 is that you died, and now you are free. In verses 2 and 3, the husband died, and the wife is free. In verse 4, the wife dies, and now she's free. You die, and now you're free. Let's unpack all of that and just make sure we, we... Really get our minds around it. In order to do so, we need to understand three things. We need to understand the law, capital L, Old Testament law. We need to understand this idea of death, how it is that we died. And then we need to understand what to do with our freedom. Paul has been talking about the law all throughout Romans. In fact, uh, it's sprinkled all throughout the letter, but he hasn't done it in one condensed place. And so let me just show you the statements he's made about the law up to this point. Many of them are negative. They kind of have this either something the law can't do or it's done a negative thing to us. Romans 3.20, we're told that the law reveals sin. Just before that, in Romans 3.19, we're told that the law condemns sinners. In Romans 15 we're told two things. That the law defines sin. It gives the boundaries for what is and what is not sin. But it also brings wrath. And then what can it not do? It cannot justify sinners. That's Romans 3.27. Paul's also made a number of positive statements regarding the law. In Romans 1.17, he says that the gospel has been revealed apart from the law, meaning that you couldn't earn the good news of Jesus Christ by keeping the law. In Romans 1, verse 2, Paul says that the law helped bear witness to the gospel. In Romans 3, 31, he said that in, or that Christ, faith in Christ, actually upholds the law because it assigns to it its proper function, which is to point to our need for a Savior. And in Romans 4, 13, Paul says that Abraham illustrates our correct relationship to the law because Abraham was justified by faith and then he received the command to be circumcised. And then we arrive in Romans 6, 14. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. We're not justified by the law, we're justified by grace. In a religious sense, for us today, this is what law says when we talk about the law. Law says if you do these things, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, you can climb your way up to God and you can get yourself into a place by obedience to the law where you're able to stand in the presence of God having earned your way there. Do these things and you can be saved. And of course we know that is completely impossible. Let's just say you took two commands from Scripture, both of them given by Jesus. The first and second greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just take those two commands and pretend that they were the only two in all of Scripture. And then take the last week of your life, seven days. Could you do it perfectly? Only two commands, only seven days of your life. You don't have to answer that question, but I will. I would not have made it. Over the last seven days, if those were the only two commands, I would not have earned my way into right standing before the Lord. Completely impossible. I understand that. And praise the Lord that I also understand that it's by grace that I'm saved, not by obedience to the law, not by legalism. But even as believers who understand that we're saved by grace, we can fall into a kind of legalism that says, do these things, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, and you'll make God happy with you. If only you would, as a Christian, do these things, then God will be happy with you. That's being married to the wrong husband. That's what Paul's trying to say. You've got the wrong husband there. You need freedom from that. In the words of author Watchman Nee, he's talking about the husband that is the law, if you will. And he says that that husband makes unbelievable demands and does not lift a finger to help you fulfill them. It's burdensome. It's difficult. It's drudgery. And even as believers, we can slip into that kind of living. And so I want to introduce you to three individuals this morning. The first guy, his name is Larry, and he is a legalist. He thinks that by following the law, he can save himself. And having saved himself, then by following the law, he can sanctify himself and look a lot like the image of God. That's a wrong understanding of the law. Both of those things are impossible. The second individual's name is Annie. She's an antinomian, which just Jim defined for us a few weeks ago, which means she thinks the law has no bearing on her. She understands that she was saved by grace, and because of that grace, she thinks, I can just do whatever I want now. Grace just covers everything. It's not a big deal. The commands of Scripture mean nothing to me. That's also a misunderstanding of the law. It makes grace look incredibly cheap. It takes grace and just tramples all over the top of it. We don't want to be Larry. We don't want to be Annie. We need a third way. And so I named that individual Franny. She's a freedman. She understands that life as a Christian is about grace Filled freedom. That's the place that we're trying to get to, and that's where Paul's directing us to this morning. And in order to get there, there has to be a death. In the case of the illustration of Romans two, 7, 2 and 3, in order for the bond to be broken of marriage, the husband died. Now the wife was free to remarry. In the case of the law and the believer, the first husband, the law is not going anywhere. In fact, Jesus said that it would stand forever, that not a jot or tittle, not a letter of the law would pass away. That husband is not going to die. And so what Romans 7 says is, you need to die. The husband's not going anywhere. You need to die. The law is not going to pass away. And so you could get on that ladder as Larry the legalist and just Climb and climb and climb and think you're going to get to the top, but every time you get up another rung, there are a thousand more that you hadn't seen before. And all you will ever do is completely exhaust yourself. Physically, mentally, spiritually, total exhaustion. So long as the law stands and we live in relationship to it, we cannot be saved, we cannot be sanctified. It doesn't have the power to do either of those things. And it's important to note that it's not because the law is insufficient It's because we are. I was a lifeguard all throughout high school. I spent all my summers uh, working at Clayview, both in high school and in college. And if you want an exercise in futility, be the teenager that has to tell children not to run on the pool deck. Some days you would show up to the pool, and it was something weird happened, and like no kids would run. And so you spent all day enforcing other rules that also at times felt futile, but at least none of the kids were running. Other times, you would have been in that lifeguard chair for 11 seconds and one kid goes sprinting to the diving board. And so you do what you're supposed to do as a lifeguard. You either blow your whistle or you just look over and you say, hey, don't run, make sure that you walk. And as soon as you blew that whistle or as soon as those words came out of your mouth, it was like a summoning cry for every child in a five mile radius to show up to the pool and do relay races on the deck. And you spent all day, don't run, Don't run, don't run, don't run. The reason why, and I love kids, but they can be monsters. (laughs) Not your child, someone else's child. (laughs) Right? The issue is not that the rule is broken. In fact, the rule is a very good thing. It's for the safety of a child. It's that children can be defunct. Right? The same is true with the law. God did not give an imperfect thing to good people. He gave a perfect thing to broken people. It's not that the law is somehow insufficient to save or to sanctify or whatever the case might be. It's that we are insufficient. The law is perfect and holy and righteous and we are broken. It cannot sanctify us because we cannot fulfill it. And so a death is needed to free us from that law. Not just to free us for the sake of salvation but also for the sake of sanctification. So who dies? In verse four, Paul says, you were put to death. We need to die. And it's only through that death that we'll be set free from the bondage of the law in order to be sanctified into the image of Christ. Galatians three makes an allusion back to something in Deuteronomy 21. Paul says that Jesus Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. Jesus, on the, his death on the cross, fulfilled the curse or the punishment for the law on our behalf. What the law demands, Jesus fulfilled. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and pointing out the reality of our sin makes it very, very clear. Our hands did things they should not have done. Beginning in Romans 3, Paul makes it clear that by grace, Jesus Christ's hands were nailed to the cross. In our sin, our feet took us places we ought not to have gone. But by grace, Jesus' feet were nailed to the cross. Our hearts were alien and rebellious to God. By grace, the weight of all of our sin was placed upon the heart of Jesus Christ, and it was pierced for our transgression. Our eyes and our ears and our mouths you know, saw and said and heard and spoke things that we should not have said or spoken or seen or have heard, Jesus Christ's head was marred by a crown of thorns. In every dimension, in every facet, in every way, Christ's life upheld the very letter of the law and his death absorbed the full weight of our punishment for not being able to do so. And now you think back to Romans 6, verse 11. As a believer who has received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, where were you or where are you in relation to Christ's death? In it, with him. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. Thanks to grace through faith, you died when he died. You resurrected when he resurrected. You are free from the bondage of marriage to the law because of your death and because of your life now in him. You are free to remarry and you are remarried to Christ by grace. The power of that law has been broken. You have been freed. Paul's not giving a command for anything. He is stating a fact, a powerful fact that we need to understand that our death in Christ has freed us from the law and brought us into a higher obedience to a greater husband, an infinitely greater husband. And so how does that freedom work? What is it exactly? Are we Annie, the antinomian now? Okay, I understand I'm not Larry the legalist, but am I Annie at this point? Am I just free to live and do whatever I want, to just cater to whatever whim I might have? And the answer is no. Paul has said that all throughout Romans 6. Our death in Christ has absolutely freed us from the law, but it's brought us into a higher obedience. And he's going to explain that in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is past tense. For when you were in the flesh, the sinful passion aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for our death. Verse 6 flips into the present tense. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the letter of of the law. Paul's writing to Christians. They've been saved. So he sets up a contrast. This is what you were before when you were married to the law. This is what you are now because you're married to Christ. And he describes what that law marriage was like. Look at the words he uses in verse 5 flesh, sin, death. That's how he describes it. Under the law, the goal would be to do enough to kind of scrape by. And we don't necessarily talk like this in our world today, but you hear echoes of it all the time. When a person passes away and people gather together in order to celebrate that person's life and mourn their death, oftentimes you'll hear people say they were a good person. I, they're in heaven because they were a good man or a good woman. That's that's like legalist kind of thinking in terms of morality. I think they did more good than they did bad, or they didn't do enough bad, or they did some really good things, therefore they're probably in heaven. That's legalism talking. But Paul says what the law ends up doing is that it arouses sinful passion. In verse 5, that's what he says. Look, imagine yourself sitting out on 152. You've waited through 17 red lights. And you're driving toward the next stoplight because there's always another one on 152. And you see that that particular stoplight is green. And it is like a breath of fresh air, like a cool breeze on a hot August afternoon. Praise the Lord, there is a green light. And as soon as you think that, it flips to yellow. And now there are two people in this world when that light turns yellow. I'm not going to make you state which camp you fall into, but the vast majority of us fall into the camp where, if that's our scenario and that light turns yellow, everything inside of our mind screams, gas pedal! <laughs> Just hammer down on the gas pedal and get yourself through the stoplight. Right? The yellow light has aroused speeding within you. That's what it has done. It has, it has brought to life inside of you the desire to run the light no matter what might happen. What's the yellow light supposed to do? Tell you to slow down. Go ahead and stop because this is going to turn red. A lack of submission is just hardwired into us. It's who we are as human beings. Someone makes a law. Now there's a chance to break it. That's how we function. Paul says that's what the law was doing in an individual. It was laying out for you exactly what sin was and then stirring in your heart the desire to break it. Not because the law is broken, because you are. And yet that very same law that arouses that within us is incredibly gracious because by creating within us the desire to sin, it should also highlight for us our need for a savior. And so the law is good. And it's gracious. We should see the commands of Scripture and think to ourselves, I cannot do that perfectly. I need someone who can do it on my behalf. I can't do this all by myself. I need something else. At which point God graciously responds, you don't have to do that perfectly because I have done it for you. That's what verse 6 is. Look at the words that are used in verse 6. You've been released from the law. There's freedom there since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit with a capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. We have a new husband, and our heart's desire should be to do all that we can to please our spouse. That's our nature as believers. And we're able to do that because we have help. We serve in the spirit, not in the letter of the law. It's like running with the wind rather than running into it. The experience is totally different. We can't forget what saved us. Grace saved us. And now we can't forget what will sanctify us. Grace will sanctify us. Oftentimes as believers, we step in you know, to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then we we are saved and justified by Christ. And now all of a sudden we think that it's the law and a strict adherence to rules that's gonna somehow make us look like Christ. Well, the thing that saved you is going to be the thing that sanctifies you. It's grace in both instances. Just as we are saved by grace, so too will we be sanctified by grace. I heard an illustration about this once a long time ago and it's always stuck with me. I need to warn you, it's one of the worst illustrations I've ever given from up here. It's cheesy and it's corny, but I've never forgotten it. Picture yourself making a pot roast. You come home at the end of the day, and we all know the smell when there's like a really, there's a pot roast that's been cooking in the oven or in the crock pot all day long, and you walk into your house and it's just like filled your entire house with that aroma. And it's time to take that thing out of the oven or out of the crock pot. So you open the oven and you get the pan out, or you take the lid off of the crock pot. And you need to get it onto the dish that you're going to serve it on. You grab a fork. You stab it into that pot roast in order to pick it up from the pan or lift it out of, the, out of the crock pot. And if it's cooked really well, what happens when you stick that fork in there? It just falls apart. You can't lift it up, right? And so you're just stabbing away at this pot roast and you're trying to look. You get a second fork out, like maybe two forks is going to help me because one wasn't causing enough destruction. And so (laughs) you're trying to do that when all of a sudden it dawns on you, I need something, I need a new strategy for this. And so you go get a spatula and you slide it underneath the pot roast and you lift the whole thing up and you move it onto a different plate. This is where the analogy gets super cheesy. I hate that I'm about to say this, (laughs) but I've never forgotten it. And so I'm going to. When it comes to our sanctification, what we don't need is to just stab away at our flesh, right, with the law, thinking that by obedience I'm going to make myself into the image of Christ. What we need is to get ourselves a spatula and be lifted up, right? The fork is willing, but the flesh is weak. What you need is the grace spatula, To lift you up into the image of Christ, right? You don't need the fork of the law. You need the spatula of grace if you're going to be molded into the image of Christ. And praise the Lord, you have it in Jesus Christ. The exact same thing that that saved you is going to be the thing that sanctifies you and so many of us feel like we're just running on this treadmill or this hamster wheel trying to go somewhere and trying to be molded into the image of Christ but the problem is you're just stabbing away with like nine forks at flesh that cannot sustain it what we need is to actively submit ourselves to grace that will lift us into the image of Christ that's what it is to be sanctified Paul says in Romans 6.14, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 7.1 that we're not under the law, but we are under grace. And the truth of the matter is that grace is also under us, lifting us, molding us into the image of Christ. Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to respond in worship. But I kind of want to expand this marriage illustration just a little bit. Ephesians states that marriage, our human marriage, is a picture of Christ and the church. That a husband is to love and serve and sacrifice for his wife with all that he is and all that he has. And that in return, a wife then is able to love and serve and respect and submit to her husband. And that a husband, by his sacrificial love and service, is to make it easy for his wife to do those things. And then both parties are completely free and safe and comfortable to pursue everything that would bring their spouse delight. light. Like, that's how marriage is supposed to work. In the church, we are the bride of Christ. You, me, all of us combined, all the believers in the world, we're the bride of Christ. We're the wife. He is the husband. So what is the husband's role? Sacrificial love and service. Christ gave all of himself for the church. The ultimate expression of love, the most costly act of sacrifice, service to the absolute nth degree. And not only that, but then he sent the spirit to lift up, to empower, and to embolden the church. Because of that sacrifice and that spirit, the church is then able with all of itself, with all of ourselves, to submit and to love and to serve. And to be molded into the image of Christ. We're not only freed to do that, but empowered to give all of ourselves toward that which will bring the Lord the most delight. That is how sanctification becomes not some sort of drudgery or slavery to the law, but instead a delight to the heart of a believer. By our union with Christ and his death, we've been freed from a spouse that was demanding and unwieldy and unwilling to lift a finger to help us. And now we're wed to a spouse who by grace has done everything and given us everything in order to not only make it possible, but joyful to be molded into the image of Christ. We are not under the law, but under grace. And grace is under us, able to lift us and sustain us in a life that increasingly becomes the image of God in a broken world. No commands in the first six verses of Romans, chapter 7, but an incredibly powerful picture of how sanctification is supposed to operate, not by the law, but by the exact same grace that saved us. Just as we're saved by grace, so too will we be sanctified by grace. Let's stand up and sing together.